When I was a young child of uh, about six or seven years of age, living in London, England, I remember reading a short biography geared toward children on the life of David Livingston, a scientist, physician, and explorer in Africa. And it struck my young mind that David Livingston had made a difference in the world. And so not long after, when an adult asked me, didn't call me, but asked me, uh, what do you want to be when you grow up? I found myself saying, I would like to be a scientist in Africa. Now, my interests quickly changed, and my talents and calling didn't line up with being a scientist in Africa, but I think that that response reflected a desire in me to make some kind of difference in the world, even something I felt as, as, a, as a young boy. Now, do you remember what you wanted to be when you grew up you know, as, as a child? Maybe you wanted to be a, a teacher or a firefighter or a doctor or a, an ice hockey player or a musician. Whatever you imagined as a child you wanted to be when you grew up probably reflected something you imagined you would enjoy doing and something that would enable you to make some kind of difference in the world. Now, whether you ended up doing what you imagined you would do uh, as a child when you grew up um, or not, that desire to make a difference was something that was implanted in you by God. Now, as we grow up and as we experience shame and a sense of not being enough, our desire to make a difference can get distorted. And so we can want to, quote, do good, but to do good in order to validate ourselves or to prove somehow that we are worthy. In one of the first messages in this series, I mentioned how Barack Obama, in his memoir, wondered out loud about his motivation for running for president. He asked himself, was I trying to prove myself worthy of a father who abandoned me? Was I trying to live up to the starry-eyed expectations of my mother for her only son? Or was I trying to resolve any self-doubt that remained from being born a child of mixed race? Michelle Obama, his wife said that Barack would sometimes work himself to the point of exhaustion because it was like he was trying to fill a hole inside himself. And our sense of not being enough can cause us to try and go big in order to validate ourselves, to prove that we are worthy. But when we experience a sense of not being enough, a sense of self-doubt, that can also cause us to try and go small and shrink away. In Japan, there is a phenomenon called hikikimori, where young people, and in some cases, adults, will literally spend their entire existence in their bedrooms or some small part of their house. They're about 
well, more than half a million people who are experiencing this phenomenon called hikikimori. They're, they're, they're confined to their bedroom or a small part of their house. And they're afraid to venture out because they fear failing or they're afraid of rejection or, or being bullied again. Kurt Thompson, a Christian psychiatrist and author, writes, Satan uses shame as an emotional weapon against us to prevent us from fulfilling our God-given calling. Satan uses shame as an emotional weapon against us to prevent us from fulfilling our God-given calling. C.S. Lewis says something similar. He says that shame, perhaps more than even vice or sin, prevents us from doing good. Shame, perhaps even more than vice or sin, prevents us from doing good because shame causes us to curl in on ourselves and become self-absorbed in our ambition or to shrink away and go small. We're currently in a sermon series on what it looks like to live freer from toxic shame and live into our truest that is made in the image of God's self. And today we're going to be looking at how when we experience the love and grace of God, we are free to fulfill our full potential and calling. In the scriptures, in 1 John chapter 4, verse 18, we read, Perfect love casts out fear. Perfect love casts out fear, including the fear of failure and rejection, which is at the very core of shame. Let's pray together. Living God, we pray that by your spirit, you would awaken us in fresh ways to your love for us. And may that love cast out our fear, our anxiety, and enable us to embrace our calling and to fulfill the purpose of our existence. And it's in Christ's name we pray, amen. So perfect love casts out all fear, including the fear of failure and rejection, which are at the heart of shame. And to quote Paul's words in Ephesians 3.18, when we have power together with all the Lord's holy people, to grasp just how wide and long and high and deep is God's love for us in Christ Jesus. There's something about that that enables us to uncurl, to be freed from our self-absorption and open up like a sunflower does as it turns toward the sun. Now, there is a part of us that is sinful according to the Bible but we also, according to the scriptures, possess a core goodness that the Bible describes as the image of God. In fact, Father Thomas Keating has said, when we recognize our core goodness, that represents a quantum leap in our spiritual journey. And when we are exposed to the love of God, to God's grace and kindness and mercy, there's something about that that helps us straighten up and 
that reveals our, our core goodness, the part of us that was made in God's image. I have a, a friend named Katie who, growing up, knew that she was loved by her parents at some level, but because of issues in her parents that stem from their own childhood, her parents could not be present to Katie in a way that made her feel attuned to and seen. When Katie was a teenager, when she pushed back on certain topics with her mother, her mother simply left the room, vowing not to become violent as her own parents had done. In order not to feel cut off from her mother or her father, Katie tried to become a version of herself that she thought would please her mother, that her mother would accept. And so Katie began to construct this other self that wasn't really her. She was living from what people call a false self. And as a result, began to experience a tailspin of shame, even as she spiraled downwards. Katie ended up having an eating disorder, which in her case was a symptom of her desire just to disappear. When she was 18 years old, Katie went to see a therapist, and she, um, in the early sessions, just sat in her chair with her knees up to her chest, hugging her knees, bending over, and looking at the ground. But thanks to the loving presence of her therapist, over time, Katie was able to actually straighten out her body. In fact, the first time, she sort of just sat with her legs crossed instead of up against her chest, her, her um, therapist said, hey, do you notice that you're sitting differently today, that your body is a little straighter? Thanks to the loving presence of her therapist in time, Katie was able to make eye contact with her therapist. She was able to connect and eventually literally find her voice. As Katie experienced the love of God through her therapist and through a few wonderful friends, she was able to claim her gifts, claim her power, her beauty, and her calling. And today, Katie is a therapist herself and bringing life to others, even as she has found a way to claim her life in response to God's love for her. And when we experience the love of God, there's something about that that casts out our fear, that begins to banish our anxiety, and we open up like a sunflower that is turning toward the sun, and we are able to claim our gifts, and we're able to use them. Uh, this past week, an acquaintance of mine from Japan happened to be in Vancouver. And so uh, several days ago, Masaru Asaoka dropped by our house to see uh, Sakiko and me. Uh, we don't know Masaru very well, but during the natural course of our conversation, uh, he, he shared part of his story. Masaru said, uh, I was um, actually um, raised as the son of a pastor. But when I was 16 years old, my, my dad died. 
He said, that was a devastating experience for me, and I, I found that I was, I was lost. And I began praying that God would give me a sense of direction. And as I was praying, I sensed God saying, Masaru, I, I want you to become a pastor. <laughs> and he said, uh, my heart was filled with fear initially, because I thought, I'm just way too young to begin moving in that direction as a 16-year-old. But then... A passage of scripture came to his heart from Jeremiah chapter 1 where God says to young Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you and I set you apart to be a prophet for the nations. Do not say I am too young. Do not be afraid for I am with you. Masaru said, those words came to my heart. They filled me with a sense of comfort and courage. And after I finished high school, I enrolled in one of Japan's few Christian universities. And upon graduation, I became a pastor. And Masaru said, there were various times in my life when I sensed God was inviting me into something and I felt fear. He was, he was just very humble and open about this. And the words that God gave to Jeremiah came again to me. Do not be afraid. I am with you. Masuda then said, a few years ago, I was invited to become the chancellor at Tokyo Christian University, which is actually the school that I graduated from. And I've been serving in that role for a few years now. And more recently, I was asked if I would become president of Tokyo Christian University. And again, I felt some fear, but I feel God is leading me in this direction. As you may know, being a president of a university is a very difficult job, especially in this era after COVID. Here in North America, since, since the pandemic, a number of colleges and universities have closed down, including at least 18 Christian colleges or universities. Masaru said, in Japan, the situation is especially challenging because of the shrinking birth rate, which means fewer young people applying to go to college and university. And the Christian population in Japan is small to begin with, and so there's a very small pool of applicants. In fact, for our last academic year, the incoming class only had 11 students. And so Masaru said, you know, I'm somewhat fearful about becoming president of this school, Tokyo Christian University, please pray for me. But I sense God saying to me, do not be afraid. I am with you. And when we recognize that God is with us, when we experience something of his love, it's not that we're not afraid at all, but that, that fear tends to get dispelled. The anxiety tends to get released. And we are able to embrace God's call for our life, even when it feels challenging. When we experience God's perfect love, it casts out fear. We're able to claim our gifts and embrace our calling, as has been true for Katie and Masaru. When we experience God's love, we're also sustained in our calling. Back in the 1960s, 
British missionaries in India were burning out at an alarming rate. And so a psychiatrist named Frank, uh, Frank uh, Lake, uh, not, not Freak, but uh, <laughs> Frank Lake, and a theologian named Emil Bruner began looking into why. And this is what they discovered. They discovered that the British missionaries in India were looking first to achieve something great. And out of trying to achieve something great, if they were able to do that, they would feel a sense of significance. And out of feeling a sense of significance, they would feel a sense of sustaining strength. And then finally, they might be able to accept themselves. And Lake and Bruner were discovering that the missionaries were feeling all this pressure to achieve, and if they were able to achieve, they might finally be able to accept themselves. But with all this pressure and burden, they were, they were burning out. And uh, Lake and Bruner called this process a cycle of works. And then they contrasted the British missionaries' approach in India to Jesus' approach to his life work. And they looked at the scriptures and they found that Jesus didn't start with achievement as the basis of his identity, but instead started from a place of acceptance, knowing that he was already accepted by God. So last week, I mentioned that before Jesus had done anything of any public note, before he had accomplished anything great that was notable by the world, God the Father said of him at his baptism, you are my beloved son, in you I am well pleased. And so Jesus, even before he did anything grand, knew that he was loved and accepted by God. And out of that sense of being loved and received by God, felt sustaining strength, significance, and out of that was able to achieve or bear fruit, as we might say, using biblical language. So for Jesus, the formation of his identity didn't start with an achievement, but with a sense of being accepted and loved. And Lake and Bruner described this as a cycle of grace. The British missionaries were working for approval, and they were burning out. Jesus was working from a place of approval and therefore felt sustained. Now there has been another group of, of, of mission workers in India who have not been burning out, who have by and large experienced sustenance and have persevered in their calling. And I'm thinking of those who've worked with Mother Teresa. I had a friend who connected with Mother Teresa obviously while uh, she was still alive and asked her, with all the needs that you see in Calcutta and in India, what enables you to keep going day after day, month after month, year after year? And Mother Teresa said, it's very simple. We do our work with Jesus. And we do our work for Jesus. And we do our work to Jesus. They do their work, those who work with Mother Teresa or who now work with her, the mission that she started with Jesus. Amidst all the blaring noise, the car horns and in Calcutta, 
and people shouting as they're selling their wares in the midst of the desperate pleas of the people that are coming to them, they also have this rhythm of prayer where they still their bodies and their minds and their spirits before God, receiving God's strength and God's love, and that sustains them in their work. Some of you would know Jennifer Sayone, who, um, along with her husband, Stephen, have had a long-time connection to 10th Church. Back in 2012, they began living in Sierra Leone. Uh, Stephen works with university scholars there who are developing systems to improve the conditions for communities around the world, the social conditions. They're addressing things like climate change. Jennifer works as an advocate for the poorest of the poor in Sierra Leone with an organization called Word Made Flesh. And uh, Jennifer and Stephen have lived in one of the most impoverished parts of Sierra Leone, a place called Crew Bay. And, And so they've experienced a stream of people literally knocking on their doors, asking for help. They've also adopted a couple of boys there in Sierra Leone, uh, Nathaniel and Ezekiel. Ezekiel was literally abandoned, was, was, was um, uh, eventually picked up, sent to an orphanage, and, and, and Jennifer and, and Stephen adopted him. Jennifer has experienced some significant health challenges, and she was here recently in Vancouver for a family wedding, and uh, I caught up with Jennifer, and I asked her, Amidst all the challenges that you're facing in Sierra Leone, including your health challenges, what has enabled you to keep going? What has helped you persevere? And Jennifer said, well, first of all, I've experienced God's love through the people I work with, my colleagues. When I am suffering, they will say, I'm suffering too. When our our mother in the faith is suffering, we suffer with mama. And then Jennifer said, Another reason I've been able to keep going amidst all the difficulties is because I love to turn my face toward the Lord, as it says in Psalm 27, and gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to behold him in his temple. I I love to worship. She says, worship gets me out of my own curled-in self-preoccupation with my problems and helps me to see just how great and good and faithful and loving God is. And when I realize God's love for me and God's goodness and faithfulness and greatness, there's something about that that energizes me and gives me strength for the journey. Now, you and I may not be called to serve the poorest of the poor in India or Sierra Leone, but we're called to do something. We may be called to raise a child. We may be called to maintain a relationship. We may be called to keep a house in decent order. We may be called to study or to balance the books as an accountant, sweep the halls as as, as someone who maintains a building. You get the picture. We're called to something. And it's as we experience the love of God that fear, and anxiety is banished or largely banished from our souls. And we can not only embrace our calling, but persevere in that calling. If you're like me, maybe you naturally look to achievement as something that will provide you a sense of sustenance. 
we may think, oh, if I only can get accepted into this school or get this position at this company, I will feel a sense of security, a sense of happiness, and I'll be able to keep going. But the research shows that if we get accepted at the school we want to go to, yes, we experience an initial surge of happiness, but then the goalpost in our mind moves. Now we think, oh, if I only get good grades, I'll feel better about myself. Or we get the position at the company, we feel an initial surge of happiness, maybe for a few hours, maybe for a few days, and then we start thinking, I really need to kill it in the role or get a promotion here. So the goalpost keeps moving. If we are looking to achievement to give us a sense of being enough, we will never achieve enough because that goalpost will keep moving and keep moving and keep moving. What we really need is a deep experience, an ongoing experience of the love of God. And this is why Dallas Willard says rightly, organize your life so that you are experiencing maximum joy and contentment and confidence in your everyday life with God. Find a rhythm to receive that love, that sustenance from your maker. I close with this. I have great admiration for the Quaker elder and wise man and teacher and author, Parker J. Palmer. When Parker Palmer turned 75, he said, now that I'm 75 years of age, I'm thinking about my mortality more regularly, certainly more uh, than when I was, say, 35 or 45 years of age. And then Parker said this, he said, at age 75, as I imagine breathing my last breath, I know that when I'm breathing my last breath, I won't be thinking, how many books have I sold? <laughs> or did I get enough good reviews? Or what were the numbers like? As I am drawing my last breath, I will be wondering, given my limitations and vulnerabilities, and cutting myself a lot of slack for my failure to do so, I will be wondering, did I show up fully for my life, given what I've got? Did I show up fully for my life with what I've got? That's a great definition of faithfulness. Did I show up fully for my life, given what I've got? That's what I want for you. That's what I want for me. And if we will turn to the face of Jesus and experience God's perfect love, including his forgiveness for our failures and our sins, his love that is without condition, fear will be banished from our heart. We will claim our gifts, embrace our calling, and we will find ourselves showing up fully for our lives. Let's pray together. If you'd like, in your spirit, in your heart, you can pray, God, 
Fill me with the waters of your love. Fill me with the waters of your love. You might pray, cleanse me, make me new. And then, if you'd like, you can pray and help me to show up fully for my life. Fill me with the waters of your love. Help me to show up fully for my life. Once more. Living God, fill me with the waters of your love. Help me to show up fully for my life. And may it be so in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.